This, the three lectures of this week are really the core of the course. And it gets harder in the second half of the course because we come closer to our own time. It's not so easy to see the shape of things. But these three writers are very different. And they come on a spectrum, really, from from kind of writer to intellectual. You see L.R. James being basically a writer first. And uh, Du Bois, uh, an academic intellectual who in his great book that we discussed last time uh, tried to try to break through into feeling. By the way, I have found the second attribute of soul which is also an illustration of method. I mean, this course, though you don't realize it, is about method. It's about how can you, you know, aspire to having some personally meaningful sense of world history. It's not to be acquired overnight, but... And uh, the reason that I'm extemporizing these lectures is that it depends on stuff that I have internalized, that is accessible, if you like, unconsciously. And when I said there are three points, you know, about what soul means for Du Bois, I was actually quoting from the introduction to the book that I read by Donald Gibson. So actually, it wasn't mine. <laughs> And so I forgot one of the three terms. I mean, that's part of the method. That, that it has to be organic to you, what's in your head. Don't be preoccupied by what you don't know. Just keep trying to incorporate more elements into what you think you know. I can often get a laugh in these lectures by, by saying, um, you know, well, I knew this guy, you know, Du Bois turned up in Ghana two years before I did, and things like that. I mean, today I'm going to say Arthur Lewis wrote his, the, the article for which he got a Nobel Prize in Manchester, <laughs> my town. The point about all this is that we have to somehow bridge the gap between an impossibly large, vast world that we know we're parts of, but can't possibly aspire to know. One of the ways is to have a kind of framework of history that you develop, that, that you yourself make to suit yourself. I mean, you know, the basic point is that we all have a little voice and a big voice. The big voice says, I'm a world beater, I'm a hero, I can do anything, I'm immortal. And the little voice, which is the one that keeps us sane, says, come on Keith, you know you're a fraud. And they're going to find out. Shut up, don't keep opening your mouth or they'll find out you're a fraud. The little voice is what keeps the big voice sane. But the reality is we have to have both. And, you know, my, my job really is to encourage you to develop your big voice because I know you've already got a very powerful little one. <laughs> so, how do we bridge the gap between the sense of being a puny self and part of a world whose forces are simply unknowable and devastating in their effect? And uh, the answer... I think, is you have to scale up the self, and you have to scale down the world. So that this scaled up self and scaled down world can uh, have a meaningful relationship. I mean, people do it in different ways. I mean, Stephen Hawking, the great disabled scientist, says, I want a theory of everything. And he hopes it will be as economical as Einstein's E equals MC squared. I mean, that's how great scientists scale the world down, to an equation. 
in his uh, anthropology from a pragmatic point of view, uh, Kant uh, develops some, I mean, he says, first of all, this is his lectures that he's given for 30 years in Königsberg, and, and he says, this is for his students when they grow up, and he hopes that it will help them to develop, you know, to develop a, a sense of their own place in the world and, and their own history. And at some point he says, I mean, he outlines a method that is quite close to ethnography for discovering human behavior and so on. But then he says it also helps to read novels, plays, and world history. Because, you know, all of these are personalized accounts of society. I mean, I've always argued, and this is not a joke, the greatest social thinker of all time was William Shakespeare. Not Karl Marx, not John Locke, not Max Weber, not Emil Durkheim. It was William Shakespeare. In fact, William Shakespeare would have died for the Oscar Pistorius story. <laughs> because, I mean, it's Othello. Only the guy's got no legs and becomes an athletics hero. I mean, there's a guy in, in the Guardian, a black South African who writes a piece, and he says he was our hero. He transcended the color line. Who would have thought it? W.B. Du Bois from Wednesday. I mean, he made us, allowed us to get out of the color line for once, maybe only temporarily. And now we're all back in it, in the shit, in the dark stuff that is South Africa. Now this is this is what plays are for. I mean, you know, I mean, some of the other great social thinkers are Sophocles, Dante, and so on. Because they understand, you know, that it's about people. Okay. So, and I should say, by the way, that I believe that the greatest social thinker of the 19th, of the 20th century, I may have said it already, was Mohandas K. Gandhi. And especially for this, he developed his whole philosophy, politics, and practice around how one can scale up the self and bring society to one's own level. He achieved that in amazing ways, and he learned how to do it here, 20 years that he spent in South Africa. I mean, there's an amazing story of, of uh, Gandhi in uh, 1924 in Ahmedabad, which is the big industrial town in North India. There were some big problems, strikes, and Gandhi just kind of arrived in town and sat on the pavement at a major intersection in the middle of the town. Just sat there. And within four days, the whole affair was about him. I mean, this is 1924, remember? He, you know, it's, it's not, he's, no, he's not at this time a national icon. But I mean, put, and if you want to find out how he did it, go and read his autobiography. I mean, my favorite story from that is that he goes to London to read the law and finds that there's nowhere to eat because he's vegetarian and there's no vegetarian food available. So he joins the Vegetarian Society, gets elected onto the committee, and by the time he's finished his, his law degree, there are 20 vegetarian restaurants in London. Now that's Gandhi. <laughs> I mean, he wants to eat, that's the point. <laughs> But he has ways of, of, of inserting himself in society that, that make a difference. I mean, everything they tell us is that we don't count. Everything, from school. Forget what you know. What they, what they say is, education is what I call a bucket and hose method. The bucket and hose, you are the bucket, you know, we are the host and the stuff fills up the bucket. And forget what was in the bucket before. 
Forget who you are. Forget what you know. You're going to learn French or physics. We'll tell you how to do it. Don't think you bring any resources to this. The whole of our education system is geared towards that. There's a very good book on Gandhi. I'm going to have to stop this sooner or we'll have a lecture. Uh, Bhikkhu Parekh. Uh, called Gandhi's Political Philosophies, about 1988. Gandhi detested the modern state. He said the point of a civilization is to enable its members, but everything in our civilization is geared to disable citizens, you know, uh, including the education system, including a system of healthcare in which all you are allowed to be is patient, meaning <coughs> passive, or sit there and let them do something to you, preferably when they knock you out and start cutting your body out. They, I mean, imprisonment is the... You know that 25% of all prisoners of the, in the world are in the United States? 25%. And most of them are black. So imprisonment is the, is the symbol of, of, of what the state does to its citizens. <laughs> uh, so this method of, of teaching yourself by, by trying to develop a framework that works for you and, and, and inserting into it things that, uh, that make sense to you. I mean, I, I, remember, I can remember the moment when I discovered this method for me. I was reading an article on revolution in 19th century Ceylon. It was a revolution by Muslims against the Portuguese and the Dutch. And the date of this revolution was 1848. Well, everybody, at least I know, you know, 1848 was the year of ultimately failed revolutions in Europe. And I thought, what happens if, you know, there was a connection between these two events that we would never know because we're all trapped in these regional and nationalist histories that say, you know, William the Conqueror was really just an English king rather than uh, a Viking bandit whose main aim was uh, on uh, Jerusalem and uh, the Holy Land. So, so for example, I mean, just let's take some of the connections which you can't make yet, but maybe you will eventually. Sir so, W. Arthur Lewis, by the way, I'm known as J. Keith Hart. You may not know that, but I am J. Keith Hart. <laughs> and my Gmail address is John Keith Hart because Keith Hart was always taken by the time I came up. There's a famous wrestler called Keith Hart. If you Google me, remember I'm not the wrestler. <laughs> so, W. Arthur Lewis, William Arthur Lewis was born in St. Lucia. I mean, I think St. Lucia is possibly the most beautiful place I've ever seen. It's, uh, it was a French colony in the 18th century, and it became part of the wars between the British and the French. I mean, we talk about 1914 as the First World War, but the First World War was the Napoleonic War between the British and their allies and the French, Napoleon. And there was a lot going on in the Caribbean because for both Britain and France, the Caribbean sugar uh, uh, trade was their principal source. So there are some very important battles in the overall war. We were talking about these on Monday in relation to the Haitian Revolution. So anyway, I mean, Lucia, St. Lucia became a British possession finally in 1814. It's in the Eastern Caribbean what the Jamaicans like to call the small islands. And it has a, a, a Creole patois, which is, has a very major sounding of French even now. And Arthur Lewis was from there. He's a very, very different character from James and Du Bois. 
I mean, he is an academic all his life. He would say that he's quite conservative. He was an economist. This is his book, though. Two lectures written up. He was at Princeton uh, later in his life. It's written in beautifully clear English. But I swear you can read this several times and you probably won't understand most of it. It's not that the language is difficult. It's that what he's trying to say is so foreign to the way you think. And just to put some connections between this, I'll go back to the first lecture on uh, Sheikh Antan Jot and uh, Walter Rodney. I didn't say much about Walter Rodney, but he's going to come up. Uh, the fundamental point of Rodney's book is we was what? That economic development consists of powerful people stealing what powerless people have. That the Europeans became what they are, they took over the world, if you like, and most notably through colonial empire in the late 19th century. They did this essentially by ripping off the natives. That uh, idea is, is taken for granted in many cases. I linked uh, Rodney's book to the development of underdevelopment theory in the early 70s. His book was published in 1972. I linked it to Andre Gunder Frank and to uh, Wallace Stein's the world system, and all of these books written at that time operate with, with what you might call a zero-sum game. That's a zero-sum game. Uh, a plus B add up to zero by simple transformation. I know you never did were any good at algebra, but you wouldn't be here if you <laughs> But so A equals minus B means that A gets rich only by B becoming poorer. The value of A goes up only by B going down. And essentially, uh, this little book by Arthur Lewis is a different kind of story. The other thing that Wallerstein and, and others like it, they, refer, they like to tell the story as if it uh, started around 1500 and that European uh, development was based on systematic exploitation of the rest of the world, starting then and peaking in the late 19th century. In my second lecture, I tried to outline a, a vision of a way of understanding what has been happening in the world in the last 200 years as being less about distribution, taking from A and giving to B, and more about the history of production and productivity and energy. And this is uh, the framework of Arthur Lewis's story. The question is, if we live in a racial world order, how did that come about? Now one story you, know, you will find in the eighth section of Capital Volume 1 on primitive accumulation. Marx says what capitalism is, is the use of free money in conjunction with free labor. In other words, in order for capital, industrial capitalism to take off, labor had to be freed from its encumberment in feudal uh, rural society, and money had to be freed from the existing pattern of its distribution. And he argues, and you know, the, the point is, this is not wrong. He argues that the way that free labor and free money arose in the period from 1500 to 1800, let's say, was by uh, peasants being kicked off the land to form a, a rootless proletariat, and by money being accumulated by piracy, slavery, colonial domination, stealing the gold from the Incas and all that. So the, 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 the capital fund uh, came from 
ripping off overseas, and the labor force came from the occupants of the land, the workers on the land being thrown off it in their, through enclosures and, and other methods. Now, in the 18th century, Adam Smith had a precursor, a man called Sir James Stewart. He, he would belong to the defeated side in the Scottish Civil War, the one that the German monarchy of England beat in a fairly horrible way in, uh, when Bonnie Bridge Charlie kind of got as far south as Derby and then was turned back. And Sir James Stewart uh, followed the, uh, the pretenders, Bonnie Bridge Charlie and his father, into European exile where uh, they lived principally in France and Spain and Italy in major Catholic uh, monarchies. Not Italy, but anyway. France and Spain. And uh, Sir James Stewart wrote the first book in English that used the term political economy. It was actually a French term, économie politique, and he wrote a book in uh, 1767 called Principles of Political Economy. And uh, just to remind you, Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations in 1776. 1776 was quite a big year. The Americans launched the War of Independence, and Bolton and Watt posted the patent for their modifications to the steam engine that powered the Industrial Revolution, and Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations. This is the kind of crazy juxtaposition that helps me to feel that I'm somehow, you know, in control of this crazy big history. But anyway, poor old Sir James Stewart, whose book is really very, very good, and I, I draw on it quite heavily in my own book, Political Economy of West African Agriculture. I've already told you, in the context of, of what Rodney was writing about, that uh, modernization theory said development means cities and science and education and political democracy and so on. But Sir James Stewart understood that development is a transformation of the relationship between rural and urban areas. It's never just about the urban areas. I did my own fieldwork in the 60s on the urban area, on the capital city, Accra, Ghana. I was never able to write a, a monograph based on my research about, you might say, the urban informal sector or whatever. And I got a commission to write a book on agriculture, which I knew nothing about. I mean, you could wave a millet stalk in front of my face and I wouldn't know what it is. So, you know, I mean, I wouldn't know, you know, what I've been hit by if I walked into one. So, and yet I found it liberating to write about agriculture based on secondary literary and historical sources because it wasn't what I was claiming to know about. It's, you know, I've found this many times that, that I can't go directly to what I'm supposed to know. I have to kind of go around somehow. But one thing that I knew when I did my fieldwork was that the rural and urban areas in West Africa were so closely connected that it didn't make any sense to separate the cities from the countryside. In fact, when I wrote the book, I argued you know, that you can only understand West African cities uh, in terms of the rural civilizations that produce them. This is very different from Southern Africa, you know, the, where white people came in and built the cities. In West Africa, there were very few white settlers. There were just a few administrators, and all the cities were built by Africans. And, then, and they were occupied by Africans in ways which were demonstrably continuous with their rural societies. So, that's why you know, I, I really latched on to uh, Sir James Stewart's method, uh, uh, approach. He starts out with something which is actually quite close to what I wrote about, which is the, the urban informal economy. 
on it, he calls it the riffraff. He says people complain about the riffraff in Glasgow and Edinburgh. That is, people milling about the streets without anything apparently to do. And he says the riffraff are essential to economic development. He said, it's only because they have left the countryside and if they survive in the city by whatever means, they create a market for farmers. He says, what the world needs least is more farmers. The world consists of mostly farmers. So who the hell are the farmers going to sell to if everybody else is a farmer? So the, the first point of early urbanization is to create an urban population that will uh, offer a market to the farmers, help them to commercialize. Through commercializing their production, they're likely to improve its efficiency. But also by selling their product rather than consuming it, they create a market in the countryside for urban manufacturers and services. And it's this development, this relationship between, the evolving relationship between the town and the countryside that consists, that is the core of uh, uh, economic development. And there's nobody who uh, captured this more effectively than Arthur Lewis. Uh, he wrote an article in 1954 called Economic Development with unlimited supplies of labor. He, shortly after that, he published a book called The Theory of Economic Growth. And uh, a late in life, uh, as I say, he published these lectures. Uh, he taught at Manchester, and this isn't just about me, uh, he published this article in the journal called The Manchester School, which is something in anthropology that we have applied to Max Bookman and so on. But The Manchester School is the school of liberal economists that developed in Manchester in the uh, uh, 19th century. And uh, let me step aside a bit. When I finished my PhD based on this research in West Africa, I realized that I understood the street economy as well as the people who were in it, perhaps even better. But neither they nor I could understand the great events that took place during the time of my fieldwork, which included the collapse of the world cocoa price, which created a huge economic crisis which was then exploited by the military to sack the, uh, Ghana's president and to shift the uh, alignment of Ghana from one side to the other in the Cold War. And neither they nor I understood any of this stuff, why or how it happened. And so I decided that, that I had to enter the world of states and international agencies somehow if only to do an ethnography of it. And so I took a job in a Development Studies Institute in the University of East Anglia. And uh, there I met uh, John Ryden, who's coming on Monday for two weeks. And he and I had these kind of conversations with him and with others there. I was the only anthropologist in a group of economists. And here's a conversation, a typical reconstructing conversation. So John Bryan says to me, uh, in Northern Ghana is the marginal productivity of agricultural labor zero or near zero? So I say, you what? I mean, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> he says, well, it's, it means that there is underemployment in the agricultural sector and you can take workers out of it without affecting aggregate production. So I said, all right. Does it matter how much they get paid for the work? And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, 
agriculture in northern Ghana is organized by something that uh, the French anthropologist Pierre-Philippe Ray calls the lineage mode of production. This is a system in which the labor of young men is controlled by old men who then convert their control of production into controlling these young men's access to marriage by, through the bridewell system, the Lobola system in South Africa. So he says, oh, so I said, basically, they don't get anything for the work that they do. So if they can get out of that into the city, anything they get there is better than what they're going to get at home. He says, oh, that's really interesting. I said, why did you ask me anyway? He says, because of the Lewis model. I said, what's that? You know, so we talk about the Lewis model. The idea that, essentially, capitalism can develop in backward areas, as it were, because in the first stages, uh, there is an almost infinite supply of low-paid labor coming out of the uh, countryside to work in the towns. And so that they, capitalists can absorb this labor force and they don't immediately have to pay more for it as the whole system develops. And of course there are many reasons for uh, making... Uh, there are several ways in which you can pay little for labor, which we will probably have to come back to. So this is it. So he, he, he had two sets. It's called a dual, a dualist model of development. There is a traditional sector, which is predominantly agriculture, which is mainly concerned with subsistence. There are people who come out of it, and who, coming out of it, will not diminish the amount of agricultural production, but who are also very cheap and, and provide a, a, a suitable labor market for incipient capitalist development in the towns, the mines, the plantations, or wherever. So that, you know, that's the Louis model in a, in a nutshell. And again, it's based on the idea that development is about rural-urban interactions. It's not about, you don't learn about development by focusing on the, uh, the advanced sectors, the capitalist sectors, the industries, the plantations, or whatever, alone. Okay. So let's see what he's saying in this book. It is very profound and it is completely the opposite of Wallerstein and Rodney. He's saying people think that the world economy has been going for quite a long time. They think of you know, Portuguese sailors in the 16th century and so on. But his argument is that until the second half of the 19th century, uh, there was, I mean, international trade accounted for almost nothing. I mean, less than 1% of the total economy of every country except Britain. And he says, even in Britain in 1870, the best economic indicator for the performance of the national economy was the weather at harvest time. In other words, if the weather was bad at harvest time, the British economy went into a slump. <laughs> and this is in the only society in the world that has a functioning international trade system that is controlling you know, finance, transport, and a great deal of trade, and is trying to take over half the world. And even so, the harvest, I mean, this, this links into something else that I said, in responding to Novi about Pitt and, and James and the anti-slavery movement, that you know, the Britain, even in the second half of the 19th century, was still predominantly a rural society, and the political system was still geared to supporting the interests of those people. The Manchester School were trying to break that down, but it took them a long time. Maybe they never succeeded. So the first thing he's saying is that international trade was a very, very small part of the economy everywhere, with the possible exception of Britain. And even then, 
not as great as you would think. That's the first point. I mean, the question that he's trying to answer in these lectures, in this short book, is how did we arrive at a racialized world economy? How, how did the world economy become divided into rich industrial exporters and poor agricultural exporters? How did that happen? And he's fully aware that, that this took on a, a definite racial dimension. And he's saying that, that the origins of this system were uh, in the late 19th century. Uh, remember, we talked about Martin Bernal and this whole discussion of when uh, a racialized vision of Egyptian history developed, <coughs> that it only really took off in the 1830s and the decades afterwards, because that was the time when the serious grabbing of the world took place. Well, this is more or less what he's talking about. And he, he identifies a period which corresponds very closely to the one that we have just been through. It's the period from the 1880s until the First World War. And he's saying, this economy that uh, we now live in, he's writing in the 1970s, was made then. It was made under conditions of financial imperialism, just as the economy that made South Africa what it is today, was driven by financial imperialism. And he says, his explanation for why Britain was the first and major industrializer is that Britain had the most productive agriculture. This is his, 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 his argument. That from the 40, I mean, London was a huge commercial market for food from the 12th, 13th century. I mean, you know, it had a million population in the 17th century. I mean, the whole of southeastern England was geared towards supplying commercial food to London. So, I mean, all these people who founded uh, America, these Mayflower pilgrims and so on, they were all from this uh, commercial, agricultural, middle class from southern England, Puritans, Protestants. These are the people who fought the uh, Civil War, obviously, against the uh, people with big hair and, and uh, fancy jackets. The, the, so, his first point is that the productivity of agriculture is the driver of economic development. And this is linked very closely to Sir James Stewart's argument. Sir James Stewart is asking, how do you increase the productivity of agriculture? First of all, you have to have a, a non-agricultural market for what they produce, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I, I, tell, I told you that if you work through this, you will think you're understanding it. But when it comes to the core of the argument, you won't. I'm not sure I do yet, or ever will. I mean, I, you know, it's, the, the argument is based not on uh, uh, marginalist economics, it's based on classical economics. That is, the, the, the work of David Ricardo and J.B. Say and, and others like it. So it's a self-consciously classical theory of economic development. So, what, what, uh, what Lewis is arguing is that between the 1880s and the First World War, there were two migration streams. One from Europe, mostly going to temperate zone countries of new settlement. Australia, Argentina, three quarters of them, in fact, to the United States. I mean, 37, there were 50 million of these people. 37 million ended up in the United States, and the other 30 million went to Canada, Australia, South Africa, uh, Argentina, and so on. 
but there was another stream of migrants in the same period, and they came from India and China. They were called coolies, and most of them went as indentured labor. This was the system that arose to replace the slave system. Remember that the, the Americans abolished slavery in 1864, and uh, Cuba and Brazil were the last to abolish in the 1870s and 80s. So indentured labor, in case you don't know, uh, was a system where people were, on, were given free transport to work on plantations in the tropics mainly, but also on construction projects and other things. And it was usually a, a, a term contract that they were bound to work for three years, after which they could. And they got free transport and they were put into this semi-coercive system. I mean, in South Africa, from the 1860s until the end of the century, there was a very large number of Indians who came into the sugar plantation uh, uh, system in Natal. And, uh, Many of the farmers there were Caribbean aristocracy who had moved out and were looking for more uh, suitable conditions. It's also the case that the Zulus didn't want to have anything to do with the British uh, capitalist economy, so they had to go and get them from India. And that was a major, major story. And this happened in a number of places. It happened in the Caribbean, in Trinidad, as I think I mentioned already, in Guyana, on the coast of South America. And many, many Chinese ended up in Southeast Asia, in what is now Indonesia, Malaysia, and created the huge kind of uh, racial, ethnic uh, tensions that existed there after colonial empire collapsed. Now, the point about this is that the Europeans earned nine shillings a day and the uh, Indians and Chinese earned one shilling a day. So the political economy of this period depended very heavily on making sure that these two streams don't come together. Because what the Asians did was they, drive, they drove the price of labor down to their level wherever they were allowed to settle, in East Africa, wherever. So this is the essence of the early 1954 article, that these people are living in an agriculture that is so poor and, and where productivity is so low, they will move internationally for next to nothing unlimited supplies of labor. The Europeans, on the other hand, are coming out of a developed, mechanized agricultural system. And it's because of the productivity of rural labor that they can command nine shillings a day, because nobody would move internationally for less. There's an anecdote I want to tell you. I mean, why do you think the American car industry is in Detroit, or at least was. <laughs> Why do you think it's in Detroit? Because in the late 19th century, the Midwest uh, was this huge agricultural production area. And it was served by the great rivers, Mississippi, Missouri, and by the Great Lakes. And, and the Great Lakes provided water transport for coal, steel, whatever was needed. So Detroit actually evolved as, as the place where agricultural machinery was made, drawing on cheap sources of coal and iron, coming in, uh, being floated on the Great Lakes. The second thing is that nobody ever imagined that the car had an urban application. They said, well, you know, we've got trolleys driven by horses in, in the cities. I mean, why would anybody want a car, you know? 
I mean, the people who are going to need cars are these farmers in the Midwest because they're scattered out. I mean, they're very low labor inputs and they, they live miles from each other. They need cars to kind of have any kind of social life. So that was another reason for converting the agricultural machinery into industry into a car industry. And of course, uh, there was a, a, a trolley system on rails from Washington to Boston through New York and Philadelphia. And in the 1920s, a consortium of automobile manufacturers led by Chrysler bought the, uh, the trolley uh, company and ripped off the rails. And from then on, you know, uh, it was the smell of petrol and not of horseshit that you generally got in the middle of the city. <laughs> so, I mean, this, I'm just telling you this story because I want you to realize that this is about the interaction between agriculture and the city. Now, Arthur Lewis has his own... So what he's saying is that, I mean, there were only two places in the world where these two uh, migration streams met. You'll never guess where they were. I mean, just think of the most racist societies you know. <laughs> the United States and South Africa. In South Africa, Chinese and other you know, laborers uh, built a lot of the railways. I mean, there's a huge story about that. Uh, I've already mentioned the Indians in South Africa. The whole segregationist system grew up in Natal around segregating Indian and white workers. I mean, these Indians worked for three years, then they went off the plantations and opened up shops. And it was the small white working class that wanted protection from uh, competition with Indian people. But these Englishmen and, and, and Indians were not of any different quality in terms of mental and physical and other capacities. So, you know, so that there was pressure to uh, keep the... Uh, so, you know, all the segregationist legislation, uh, including discriminatory property-owning uh, laws, uh, voting laws, uh, licensing for urban enterprises and so on, all these were developed in Natal in order to save white people from Indian competition. And then uh, in the early 20th century, the Africans joined the miners' labor force and the urban labor force in, in great numbers. And this Natal experience was then transported to the much greater task of making sure that the black workers didn't get out of hand. So uh, one of the reasons why South Africa is the racist society it is, is because these two streams combine. I mean, it's not that you save yourself from racism by avoiding it. For example, Australia, he uses Australia as an example. I mean, Australia had an industrial output per capita higher than Britain itself and several European countries by the early 20th century. And he's saying, how did that happen? Well, one of the ways that it happened was that the white working class in Australia had an, a, a racist immigration policy that nobody from, I mean, look at them, they're sitting in the desert. I mean, a handful of white people, they get rid of most of the Aborigines, that didn't take much effort. But they go, you know, they got this, 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 Billions of uh, Asians just across the water, ready to come in and occupy the desert and drive them out of their jobs. So this, uh, I mean, and it's, of course, it's, it's Industrial Labour Party that pioneers this uh, thing. Same thing here in Johannesburg on the Rand. At one point, the, the, the mine owners brought in Chinese labour. Well, you can imagine what the white working class thought about that. So. Now the interesting thing about uh, Arthur Lewis's argument is he says, I know that everybody says that this is the result of political 
intervention by colonial powers at the expense of indigenous people. But he wants to make an argument that there is a, an economic logic behind it all that is much more powerful. And he tries to give examples where he shows that colonial powers try to impose this. I mean, I, I have to get this done quickly. I mean, after the Civil War in America, there was a huge migration from the South to the Northern cities, especially to Chicago, which was also the main uh, place for the immigration of Europeans. The thing that was interesting is that this Southern to North migration in the second half of the 19th century was uh, mainly women that the patriarchal white southern landowners wanted to keep the men but they didn't mind the women going. And most of the migrants from Europe were, were men, so figure it out. I mean, you know, figure out what happened when all these European men and all these uh, southern black women ended up in Chicago. <laughs> and the reason why the demand was for women was because in many early in, in, uh, urbanizing situations, the first and greatest demand for labor is domestic, and, uh, which is why there's a demand for, for women. So, uh, and in many ways, the segregationist culture that developed in the north of the United States was more powerful uh, than the slavery system that preceded it. But Arthur Lewis's argument is that this was how the world got divided into rich and poor countries. Uh, in which one, you know, went on the path of what Marx calls relative certain value towards mechanization and increased industrial production, and the other remained vulnerable agricultural exporters. And he says the point is that these people who were paid nine times as much as their Asian counterparts, that money, you know, creates demand for the development of the home economy. I mean, if, 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 if uh, workers are being paid nine shillings instead of one shilling, they can spend the nine shillings and that makes a market for other people supplying what they want. And, uh, and when they're only being paid a shilling, that market is, is, is suppressed. Okay, I'm going to have to finish this. Uh, uh, but the, the main point I wanted to make today, through Arthur Lewis, and I'm not sure that his argument is right, it's just good to think with, but the main point is that our world was made in the run-up to the First World War, not in the 16th century. And it was made in a particular way that persists, that persists here and in the world. I mean, it persists in the fact, you know, that if I have any choice, I won't get into an immigration line behind the black man. You know, because this is discrimination persists in our world, even though we claim to have abolished slavery, we claim to have abolished racism. Isn't so. It's still the color line, is still the major challenge for the 21st century, not just for the 20th. Thank you.